This is Make Yourself at Home, a podcast where we talk about real estate and development amid the pandemic. I'm Miriam Hall. I'm BizNow's New York reporter. Today, we're hearing from Melissa Birch, the Executive General Manager of New York Development at Lendlease. The Australian construction giant has been working to expand its development platform in the US in the last few years, and it developed luxury condo tower 2775th alongside Victor Group. Its next project is 100 Claremont, a 42-storey condo tower in Morningside Heights, which Lendlease is building with L&M Development Partners. The company's just locked down a $250 million construction loan from Barings. They inked the deal during the health crisis, and I asked Melissa how they managed to pull that off. It was certainly not easy. We, we are in a very disrupted world for capital markets. Uh, we've seen very significant disruptions um, in the debt and equity capital markets in this period. And, you know, I, I am really proud to have been working with the partners that we were working with who were resilient, who were creative. It took a lot of creativity to figure out how to get everyone across the line to really consummate a new project, you know, that had long been in discussion and long been in the works, but to close on $250 million of construction financing, I think is a real testament to, you know, Lendlease as a borrower. We have uh, a development partner as well, and that transaction L&M development, uh, we're a strong partnership together. And Bearings, uh, who really remain committed when many financing um, entities were canceling deals, were stopping deals dead in their tracks. I mean, it took much longer than we thought it was going to, but obviously we're in a huge period of disruption. So, you know, the fact that it got done is what I focus on. And that took all of the parties being really committed to trying to to work together and get the pieces to fit together in a slightly different way than they were originally constructed in, you know, in order to get to a closing. Did, I mean, was it about to fall apart at one point? I mean, did, did you think that this was, this was off the table? I mean, I will say that there, we were in pretty grim days in April. I mean, I, you know, I sort of go back to all of the headlines and to the sort of feeling of, you know, impending doom that many New Yorkers were experiencing as we were just seeing, you know, the number of deaths and, you know, the hospitals being overwhelmed. And New York went on pause. Many businesses as a business philosophy was let's not do anything right now. Let's not take action. Let's just sort of batten down the hatches. Let's, you know, let's sort of deal with the things that are already in our portfolio. Let's not sort of take on a new opportunity or a new risk. So in that sense, yes. I mean, of course I was concerned that, you know, that we wouldn't come out the other end of this pandemic with a completed construction loan. I mean, I really believe in this location, in this project, in the real estate. So the question was never, would something happen here three years from now, but, but it was, you know, could it, could it happen now? And was there still sort of a will? Was there the risk appetite? Was there the partnership strength to enable people faced with all of that doom and gloom to say, yes, let's continue to move forward and advance this and figure out, I think most importantly, how do we get everyone's organizations comfortable with sort of the new risks? How did you convince them? How did you uh, shift the terms? 
what kind of compromise did you have to make or what did you have to say to them to make them feel that this was a good thing to do in what was probably the most extraordinarily challenging times that most of us have experienced yeah i i so Miriam, I mean, some of it I can share with you and some of it is just the, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have to stay, um, you know, confidential, but lift the lid as much as you can, (laughs) draw the curtains as much as you can. So, you know, what, what were some of the real risk factors that we were confronting? One of them, which is fascinating to me is thinking about the construction supply chain. So we are developing a project, you know, a 41 story project at 100 Claremont and are, you know, already in construction and, you know, had been, uh, you know, had already secured our contracts for the facade, which is already being manufactured at a plant up in Canada with uh, bricks that are being manufactured at a plant in Pennsylvania. I will say in April, when the world had so much negative news about how coronavirus was overwhelming so many countries and cities. My first reaction was, I'm so glad we didn't source our facade from Italy. Italy is a big manufacturer of facades. Uh, You know, I'm so glad we didn't buy windows from China because look at those economies were shut down. Well, of course, that was just the first, you know, it just, it just hadn't come to us yet. So on some level, um, some of those early risks we weren't exposed to, but then the Pennsylvania brick facility got shut down by you know, government mandated closures, as well as our facade facility in Canada. So this is where you know, the supply chain of construction is global and this pandemic is global. And very rarely have we had global threats that could really take on something as robust as a global supply chain, but that happened here. So, you know, we had some significant concerns if our facade facility is closed for how long, you know, the government will decide when it will open again. The government will decide when, you know, what sort of restrictions will be put in place. Will we be able to keep our timelines, which is a really important thing when you're getting ready to launch a construction project and take down a construction loan, you're paying interest every single month on that construction loan, you better have real clarity and certainty around how long it will take you to build that building. And if your supply chain is interrupted because of something not of your own doing, something that no one has you know, control over because it's you know, the virus that's in control, but if you don't have certainty on that, then you are really exposing yourself to an enormous risk. So what we really needed was time to allow for governments and economies in some of these areas to open back up again, you know, so that facade firm and that brick manufacturer could validate that they would still be able to produce the goods on the schedule that had been previously agreed. Once we had more clarity around supply chain, which for a while was completely shut down, once we had clarity there, we could then validate for ourselves and for our lender that we had you know, the right level of visibility and confidence that the underlying assumptions of our construction period could still be met. So that's just one example of how the virus and how COVID really wrecked havoc with the process of securing a construction loan. 
You must have popped the champagne when you got that deal signed. (laughs) Yes, I did pop the champagne. And uh, no, I'm just laughing because there was a very nice bottle of champagne that was sent to me by JLL, which helped us to arrange for the construction financings. Oh, you you still need to get that open. (laughs) What are you waiting for? It was such a special bottle that I felt like, you know, you know, when you have a really special bottle, you sort of feel like, oh, is this a special enough moment? Um, So it's still sitting in the in the refrigerator. I haven't opened it yet, but I did pop some other champagne. So you had to really demonstrate to them that, yes, we have security, because I remember writing in February about will the supply chains be affected? And all we were thinking about was China. Who gets stuff from China? Will China be slowed down? And the questions that the lenders had about that, they want to see from their from the people that they're giving money to that they're prepared for a potential shutdown, that they're prepared for a slowdown, that they will be able to get things on track. What you just identified, Miriam, is the evolution of COVID. You know, what you think you know is different the next week. And so we just needed you know, a little more sort of stability in the situation in order for us to be able to demonstrate that those factories were reopening. Because you're right, I was very happy we didn't have, uh, you know, our facade coming out of Milan, but then I couldn't have never guessed that Quebec would have been shut down for, you know, perhaps just as long of a, of a, of a duration as Milan was. And while that seemed seemingly lower risk, in, you know, in fact, it was exposed to the same, you know, sort of government mandated closures that many of these other markets, you know, that we heard about with overwhelming numbers of COVID deaths were, were exposed to. So, um, so that's certainly one example. You know, another is that there was concern that there might be subcontractors that might go out of business. Um, and, and so I think that for both Lend-Lease and for the lender, there was a lot of, you know, there was a desire to see, okay, a lot of companies had to furlough, had to lay off people, had to take extraordinarily rapid measures to make sure that they were in a position of financial health. Um, it is, Lend-Lease spends an enormous amount of time underwriting the subcontractors that we do business with. Uh, because there's incredible risk. If a subcontractor fails, you have halted your construction site and you've really put the rest of your construction op- your construction um, sequence at risk uh, because there is a sequence to the way that construction happens. There is a sequence to the way that buildings are built. And if you disrupt that, I mean, you know, you can't disrupt the sequence. You know, you can't put up the facade before you've got the superstructure in place. So, there uh, was a need to make sure that the underlying health of the subcontractors that we had already awarded parts of the project to, that, you know, that their health was intact. Some of those subcontractors had secured PPP loans. As we did our due diligence with our subcontractors and going back to them saying, you know, what is your financial health? Are you going to be able to economically deliver on the ter- you know on, on this project uh, based on what your businesses have experienced from the covid fallout you were asking really probing questions that you wouldn't normally be asking in the normal course of securing a loan no i mean i will say that lendlease does a lot of underwriting of our subcontractors because there is so much risk there so this is a very robust process and we really do 
you know, because there is so much r risk if a subcontractor were to fail, the process of trying to identify a new subcontractor to come in and take over is a very treacherous process. You really don't want to be in that position. So with such an economic shock that everyone experienced from COVID, we had to re-underwrite and revalidate that for people that we had already awarded jobs to, that they were in fact still financially able, you know, that they were healthy enough as a firm to be able to fulfill the obligations of the contract. So I think what was unusual about this was just that we did it once way back when, and then we needed to do it again. And I think that for many firms and even for a company like Lendlease, you know, the financial position and health of a firm is an evolving thing. It's not a static thing. And we were all experiencing a shock. So, you know, I think we all needed to be eyes wide open. We, you know, we did validate the health of these suppliers and subcontractors. And, you know, we have a very sound project, but that underwriting rigor was very appealing and attractive to our lender. You're obviously very invested in New York City and the development of New York City. How do you want to see the city change as it moves past this crisis? There needs to be a spirit of experimentation in all of this. People talk about New York City, never counted out. You know, look what happened after 9-11. Look what happened after 08. Our city is resilient. I believe that very much, but I do not believe that these things can be taken for granted. And so I think that anyone that has a laissez-faire attitude about New York, it'll come back, it always does. I don't think that's the case. It comes back because of public-private partnership. It comes back because of leadership. And uh, it comes back through government policies that sort of enable it to be stronger and more resilient than it was before. You saw that in 9-11. New York City did not just passively say, like, this is going to work itself through the system. No, they took incredible measures. I mean, uh, under Mayor Michael Bloomberg, you know, there was a lot of anti-terrorism efforts that were city-led, that were very focused on um, safety, uh, you know, and a sense of safety and comfort amongst people. There were very clear sort of real estate policies that were put into place to stimulate construction and new development and new investment into downtown. I think about 08, and I think about um, how much more concentrated in the financial services New York City was at that time versus where we are today. And that didn't happen by, you know, by coincidence that we have a much more diverse economy than we did back in 01 or, or in 08. No, that's through government policies of, you know, economic, devel uh, economic development policies focused on diversifying New York City's economy, on stimulating investments into applied sciences, into technology, into attracting new companies to grow in New York, incentivizing them, enabling uh, their ability to see a future um, here and helping them understand why this is a great city for them to grow. So um, this is all very purposeful and intentional. So I think about where we are today and I think about what are gonna be some of those opportunities to be sort of purposeful and intentional about New York City's recovery. It, it's just not a given. We have to make it true. And I think that uh, there have been some really fascinating examples of New York City's 
resilience economically in this period of the pandemic where we see that New York City is making some of its own PP&E. Some of the investments that the city has been making into applied sciences, whether it's through, you know, companies in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, I know there are companies in Industry City that are doing manufacturing and those investments in um, uh, keeping manufacturing capability and sort of reinventing that for the 21st century have paid off where we've now been able to address some of the own needs that our city had by way of, you know, uh, PP&E, I think even ventilators were getting um, uh, made here in New York, not en masse, but in a way that really demonstrated the versatility of the type of companies that we are helping to grow within New York. The other way I think that we are maybe going to see the city, and I, and I want to see the city start to really experiment, is around rethinking city streets and this uh, sort of sense that the streets are only for cars and, you know, at the edges, maybe we can make room for a bike lane or maybe we can make room for, you know, like a city bike stand. I think there is ripe right now a more dramatic rethinking of our city streets and why that matters is for so many reasons. I mean, if we need to have social distancing and also bring back the population of New York into their offices, people need to be able to move on sidewalks. They need additional space to walk. And I think that we really reflect the priorities in the way that we allocate real estate. And right now, when you look at the city streets, the dramatic allocation is to cars. And I think that that is not the right allocation for today. I think we need more public space. We need to think about more space for people, more space for bike usage, which is way up in this pandemic and is a long-term trend that I think is not only uh, green, uh, you know, it's not, only great for our economy, but it's good for the health and wellness of people and really allows for a new form of mass transit network to be taking place on our streets. I haven't been on the subway. I haven't been in a cab or an Uber since March 11. Uh, and I've been in New York City the entire time. And the only way that I've been able to get around the city safely is on foot or is on, on a city bike. And it's completely changed <laughs> the way that I have been in the city and in, on the ferry. That's all that I have been doing. And it has completely changed my experience of New York and it has completely changed my view of the city. Here's the sorts of things I was doing. I was paying to get an Uber to a bike class in a room. I could just ride around the city. Like, what was I thinking? <laughs> Miriam, you are the example of exactly what I'm describing, which is that there's a moment right now that I think we're seeing, you know, some real thought leadership, but I think the city now has an opportunity to really grab a hold of this to think about what does the future of New York look like? And it's going to talk about the future of New York in terms of, you know, the economy, in terms of, um, you know, in terms of the workforce, but it's also the urban environment and our, and our you know, our public realm. What is the future of that? And what do we want to prioritize and celebrate? And uh, how do we want to remake the city in a way that is more inclusive, that is more equitable? And I think that this is a very real physical manifestation of 
that conversation and you're already doing it. We have real estate. It's just been underutilized because it's only been utilized for cars. You know, that real estate could be used for outdoor classes, for outdoor meetings. Like our streets should be thought of in more ways than just conduit for cars going from place to place, which is perhaps one of the most inefficient ways of thinking about the utilization of those streets. And there are great examples around the world of w ways that mayors and, and cities have been have been looking at saying we have too much congestion in our streets. The quality of life is is uh, not good for city dwellers. How do we start to relieve some of that sense of like density and congestion? How do we create more of a neighborhood scale in our cities and actually allowing people to take back their streets with more public realm uses, whether it's dining which are ways for people to gather, whether it's um, outdoor activities like bike lanes or you know little parks, you know they don't have to be expensive interventions. They can be. Um, I mean, there's already a number of schools that will use city streets that get closed down for you know for recess. So it's not like it has to be a big fancy park, but you need the space and the real estate, and we have it. We just have been prioritizing cars for it, and I think that. There's a need for us to think about, can schools use those spaces for outdoor classrooms? If we said, think of the streets as part of your school real estate, we might get a different response around you know, the number of days that people can go back to school. Maybe we can increase the number of days that people can go back to school. Maybe, can we, you know, maybe we can think about outdoor exercise classes um, and you know, group, group classes being, being held outdoors. On the weekend, I went to, I rode my bike, my bike, I rode the city bike to an outdoor comedy show at a restaurant. So they had set it up, all the tables out on the footpath in the street, and they had the comedians outside with their own microphones. And that was, it was a great night out. There were a few like skateboarders that came through a few times, like at the punchline, but, but that was, that was it an adaptation of a Saturday night in New York in the time that we're currently facing. Absolutely. And it is like how the city is innovating. Like this is a time for innovation and adaptation. And I love that sense of flexibility. And I think we do have flexibility as a city. We have a lot of great resources and attributes that now is the time to flex, experiment, innovate, and play with things that could be longer term changes to the way that the city decides to, you know, to evolve. So it's an exciting time in that sense. You know, I think there's a lot of people that talk about, you know, are people leaving the city? Is there urban flight? You know, y y yes, I think it's been documented. Um, I think it's a fact. W will it be sustained? Will it exist one year from now, two years from now? I don't know. I don't believe that that will be the case, but again, this is sort of where the complacency doesn't do New York any good.